Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So hello, Kristen. I am on remote. So if it sounds a little remotey, that's why I am in beautiful Brainerd, Minnesota. It's not like a super top secret project for a candidate. So I can tell you my location. It doesn't need to be an undisclosed location. I have a view of a lake from my hotel room. I have a fireplace in my room with real firewood. For some reason, like there are hundreds of rooms and cabins here, all with fireplaces. And you could buy firewood at the gift shop in the lobby, which I don't think I've ever seen before. It is quite beautiful. I have to say it is one of the prettier places I've ever done a focus group ever. And you've That's done I I, I, my favorite Margie focus group story remains the time that you went to uh, where the crab boats go out in Alaska. Oh, yeah. That that's still yeah. like if we're talking, Margie goes to the frozen tundra, which I guess I know Minnesota is not the frozen tundra because it is May. But <laughs> when yes. you're talking about Even the fire, this week. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, that was definitely the most remote for sure. But this is really quite lovely and not as far as Dutch Harbor. Alaska was. That was pretty far. This is not quite as far. It's a little bit easier to get to. Anyway, but I am leaving shortly after this. But that is why we may sound a little remote and echoey. We're, you know, because I. But we sound, I think I'm we are going to sound mic. better remote than we normally do when we try to do this remote because we have Richard. And Richard is making this all sound significantly better when it, than when it's just like you and me trying to figure out how to, to do this using hotel Wi Fi from across the country. So. Yes. You know, with Richard here, we're not, we don't have to resort to like me wanting to throw my phone in the, you know, otherwise I'd probably like throw my phone in the fireplace and just like no violence against gadgets, no violence against gadgets today. Okay. So what are the top lines? Well, first, before we dig into the top lines, uh, for our loyal listeners, um, I would like to buy you a beer or a glass of wine. Um, if you are headed to APOR, the American Association of Public Opinion Researchers Conference that's happening in Denver next week, um, I am going to be there for about a day and a half. Uh, and on Thursday evening, seems to be kind of the party evening. I know there's the Survey Monkey folks are throwing a little shindig. There's a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, it's just going to be me. Unfortunately, Margie can't make the trip, but I am going to go. And my plan is I'm going to camp out at Yard House, which is a uh, an establishment in Denver that's right next to the hotel from 5 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, Denver local time. If you are a pollsters listener and you want to come by, I'd love to buy you a drink and we can chat. And maybe I'll pack a pollsters mug or two in my suitcase if I can find where I have the extra. 
us. Uh, so please, if you are if you are around and would like to say hi, um, a poor folks would love to see you. And now the top lines. So first, we'll talk a little bit about Trump's job approval and whether the public has started to sour at all on the Mueller investigation. There's also polling showing that Trump gets decent numbers on his economic job approval, but there are questions about whether Americans are actually feeling the economic boom. Then we'll talk a little bit about the congressional race that's coming up in November. Uh, Is the generic ballot really tightening? How excited should Republicans be about these developments? And how distressed should pollsters be about the somewhat kind of surprising fall of Don Blankenship in West Virginia. Um, There's a new poll out from the uh, American Psychological Association on stress and opioids that we'll dig into. And then as folks who have followed the news may know, the United States has withdrawn from the Iran deal. There's a lot of polling on this issue that asks the question in very different ways and gets very different results. So we'll explore how the country may be feeling about the U.S. withdrawal. And finally, Last week was May 4th, which is May the 4th Be With You Day. We will look at some polling on Star Wars versus Star Trek. So first, our poll of the week is from the American, the American Psychiatric Association. They released a poll. Oh, I missed that about- up then. <laughs> oh, it was, did you say psychological? Well, I did. I'm sure they get that. I, they get that a lot, I bet. <laughs> it's not the first time that that's happened, so I'm sure that's fine. Um, how... Anxious are you about each of the following? And they have a variety of things that, you know, one is often anxious about, like keeping myself safe, my health, paying bills or expenses, where about two thirds say they are extremely or somewhat anxious about those things with like a quarter to a third, roughly approximately are at that top category, extremely anxious. But almost there, just under that top tier, is the impact of politics on my daily life, where about half, 56%, say they are extremely or somewhat anxious. Now, there, the intensity is a little bit lower. Only a fifth say they're extremely anxious about the impact of politics. But more say they're anxious about politics than about their relationships with family, friends, and coworkers. I mean... It's not a surprise, you know, to, uh, to me. I mean, it's not a surprise. Like, I, I certainly know lots of people who are anxious thinking about politics in my real life. Um, but that is a pretty high number for the whole country. Um, we've seen polling like this before. This, ha- You know, there was polling during the election about how anxious people felt. There was polling right after. This is, you know, this is now a year and change in the Trump presidency, you still have quite a few people who say they are, you know, they're quite anxious. Um, They have some other data in here too on things like opioids and mental health generally, which we can talk about. But what did you think when you saw that more people feel anxious about politics than about their relationships? Well, so in a way, I wasn't surprised. And now I know why when I saw APA, I jumped to American Psychological Association, A, because If you have ever had to write a paper, that's a very popular format in which to do your citations. But two, the American Psychological Association does a study every year called their Stress in America study. And last year's, they found for the first time ever that public – like what's going on in the news rose to become the top stressor in America, topping things like – career and making ends meet, like the things that you work, stuff that used to make the top of the list was now competing for, you know, biggest stress source in America with 
the news and what's going on in the country. So this is sort of like an, an interesting follow up to that that sort of just reaffirms that that the this one actually more specifically says politics, which I think the stress in America survey was more about just current events and what's going on in the world, which you might see some of that reflected in the keeping myself or my family safe number as well. Whereas this is this framing is more narrow. It's not about the news and what's going on in the world, but it's about politics, which is just a piece of that puzzle. You know, not only that, the question wording here is the impact of politics on my daily life. So that's pretty specific. I mean, you could find, you know, if this was a question that said like talking about politics with people and that made me anxious, I wouldn't be surprised that people felt that. But the impact on politics on a daily life, there are people who are, who hate talking about politics. They don't want to hear people talk about politics on Facebook or what have you, but they don't really feel like it impacts their daily life, particularly. There are quite a few people there, but but with this kind of spe- very specific question wording, it's still pretty high. So it's not just the folks who listen to the pollsters who find politics a- a- anxiety, crazy-making or anxiety-inducing. And we talked about, the, we didn't go into a lot of detail, the uh, White House press corps poll last week where, you know, people were talking about how stressful it was to cover the White House. You know, it looks like Americans are the same in the same place. And they had some interesting stuff. People should take a look about mental health where people feel, I thought this was good news, that there's less of a stigma around mental health than there used to be 10 years ago. Um, I felt like there was some understanding here, you know, about opioids. There was a question, I understand how someone accidentally gets addicted to opioids three-fourths feel that way. Um, People seem to feel optimistic about recovery when it comes to opioids. So I think there's some interesting stuff if people want to take a look. Yeah. There's one other thing that I wanted to note out of this poll. They they did a – I don't know if this was a split sample or if it's just – it looks like it might be a split sample situation where they said, when working to solve the opioid crisis, should policymakers prioritize? And then they have two different contrasts. So one is, is improving access to treatment versus imposing stricter punishments and enforcement. And by a very wide margin, 62 to 26, people prefer treatment to punishment as the way to deal with this. But for those who got split sample B, um, the options they were given produced a much more split result. Um, The options they were given were working with doctors to limit opioid prescriptions or working with those who are addicted to opioids to end their use. Um, And in that situation, you wind up with uh, 47% picking doctors to limit opioid prescriptions, 43% who say working with those who are addicted to end their use. And this is a more, I think, controversial piece of this debate, because I know I've seen a couple of pieces recently um, pop up in my Twitter feed from doctors or chronic pain patients who almost worry that in an attempt to push back against, you know, the the prevalence of opioids uh, that have made it easy for for so many folks to, to wind up um, finding themselves, you know, dependent on these drugs, that there are folks who really are dependent on them, you know, using them in the medically prescribed way to manage chronic pain that now face issues accessing those pills. I mean, I know I have a loved one who recently just went through uh, some some surgery and had a prescription for for some opioid pain pills just for like a couple days. And we, we were sort of warned by the hospital, like, oh, don't even bother going to a CVS in D.C. because like they're never going <laughs> they're never going to fill you this prescription. Just go to Virginia. I mean, and it wound up being fine. But, you know, the idea that you actually have a prescription, but they won't even fill it or they believe that, that it won't be filled 
it, it just raises the, you know, there are trade-offs in the discussion about how we handle this. And so I thought it was just fascinating that statement B wound up as split as it was. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we'll link to it. And we're, we apologize, psychiatric organization, but we, we will link to this as we always do the show. I wonder so if can the take a American look. Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association have any like beef with each other. <laughs> are they, are they, do they, do they compete? Do they, I need, I need to know about these professional association beefs. Right. So you, like after the stress in America, were they meeting at the psychiatric organization? Like, we need a poll. <laughs> Where's our poll? <laughs> so what's going on in Trump land, Margie? It looks like things are continuing to look up for the president, but he's still, you know, there's it's still not all good news. Yeah, I mean, I guess, right, are we, I guess there are a couple ways to look at it, right? One is... I guess his numbers aren't are vaguely improving. I mean, it's hard to not look at that entire trend line in the Huffington Post average or wherever else and not see that Trump has improved a little bit. He's now basically at 43 percent approve, 52 um, percent disapprove and say, OK, well, you know, that's not the, that's better than he's been. It's not the worst he's been. It's better than he's been. There's some movement. It's clearly moving in one direction at the same time. Like these are not good numbers. I mean, they continue to be bad numbers for the, uh, pr- the president, where he's never had good numbers. There's a lot of intensity in opposition to him. Philip Bump had something, you know, that really broke down and did a lot of good um, data viz that will link to, you know, looking at how the, the percent who have very strong opinions of him, and that he's never had, you know, strong ratings. His ratings are you know lower than past presidents. I mean, these things we've seen and discussed before. It's not news. It's not new, I should say, but. And that continues to be true. And a a point or half a point uptick in the overall average is not going to change that. Um, You know, the the question is, you know, what happens next? How do things turn around? Uh, You know, how do things turn around? Can they turn around? Can they improve for him, you know, substantially in some way? That's one issue. And then the other issue is, like, what's causing it? Is it because of international accomplishments or perceptions of his international strategy, or is it because of views toward the economy? So there are a couple different polls out recently that, that touch on some of these things. The C, there's a new CBS poll that, um, that talks about, uh, the Mueller investigation that shows an uptick in the percentage of people who say that the investigation is politically motivated. The percent that say it's justified is the same as it was in, December, it was 46. It's now, uh, I guess, it's I have now some, 44. I have some modest yeah. beefs with the, uh, the data viz, the data viz going on here. <laughs> yeah. Anthony Salvanto, if you are listening, uh, I have some questions about why the bar for 46 is much larger than the bar for 44, and yet the bar for 53 is the exact same size as the bar for 48. I'm just saying, listeners, go to the show notes. Tell us, am I am I going crazy? Am I going crazy here? <laughs> no, I'm looking at it. And I'm like, before I finish this sentence, am I looking at this correctly? And <laughs> yes. And so sometimes, like the bars help, but then, but it, sometimes it's best to just look at the numbers and not look at the bars. And it's also kind of where they put the, um, you the know, text. The data label. Yes. yes. Well, anyway, the long story <laughs> short is that in December there was a plus two for the Mueller investigation is politically motivated. It was 46 to 48. That has now widened out to be plus nine, 44 to 53. So 
it began kind of split back in December and has widened. Yeah. And then you have and then they broke this out, helpfully among just Republicans. Should Trump cooperate and be interviewed in January? 73 percent of Republicans say yes. Now, 53 percent of Republicans say yes. And that's a really a substantial difference. And it's not clear from looking at these top lines when you have quant like this, like, you know, well, what's the reason behind it? Is it because there's been an increase of coverage that's that that is um, accusing the investigation of being politically motivated, that people are getting the perception from some news outlets that it's politically motivated? Is it because of something recent, other recent events? Is it, you know, because of the, the you know, people f- want to see the end of the, or resolution of, of the investigation? Like, what's causing that? Or is it because people are worried that if he cooperates, you know, who knows what might happen? So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to know the why behind that, but the change among Republicans is really what's driving this change overall. Yeah. And on this question of which uh, what Republicans in Congress should be doing, you know, you see a lot of headlines about uh, the various, you know, I feel like the Senate has taken a very different tack than the House when it comes to their pieces of the Russia investigation. This does not separate out, like, do you support what the House Republicans are doing versus Senate? But what it just says is, would you, which, which of these should Republicans in Congress do about the Russia investigation? Should they try to end it or let it continue? And by a two to one margin, people say let it continue. But for Republicans, that's kind of flipped around. Um, 68% of Republicans say they should try to end the investigation investigation, while only 29% say let it continue. So uh, which is why you see, you know, there are you've got the Bill Crystal group um, out there that is running ads on Fox News trying to like persuade Fox News viewers to say, look, let the investigation happen. Don't meddle in it. Um, but but within the world of Republicans, that is a, a minority viewpoint, it seems. Yeah. And I, you know, and I said this last week because there's now quite a bit of polling on this that comes out every week. But um, that there are different meanings or ways we can talk about end ending is ending the same as stopping. Um, you know, uh, this is now getting kind of, and, and the investigation is complicated. So the questions about it are going to be complicated, but, you know, saying what should Republicans do in Congress about the Russian investigation, end it or let it continue. I think that's assuming that respondents know a little bit about what that what that, what we're asking there, you know, what that, what that would look like, what the, what we're suggesting, what the question is suggesting Republicans in Congress would do if they took this path versus the other path. And I'm not sure it's quite so clear to respondents unless they are following it all very, very closely. So the other things that are uh, the Trump administration is dealing with is this kind of dichotomy. But you've got on the one hand a lot of voters that feel very uh, they don't feel great about the ethics of this administration. They don't love uh, the way Donald Trump conducts himself as president. On the other hand, and this is something that you know you will hear. Uh, you know, former pollsters host Kellyanne Conway say on, uh, you know, on TV that, well, the president's winning on the issues. Um, I mean, I think it depends on what issue you're talking about. But there is some interesting evidence in some new polling out of the Pew Research Center to, to suggest that it is on the issues where Donald Trump tends to do the best. Um, their most recent uh, study that they've rolled out surveyed people uh, late April. 
Um, and w- wanted to know, you know, do you think that the Trump administration officials, d- are their ethics, are they not good? Are they poor? Most people, a majority say that the ethics in this ad- of top administration officials are not great. Um, even among Republicans, only 19 percent think that these are folks of excellent ethical standards. Um, but you do have 75 percent overall who say good or excellent, 75 um, percent among Republicans who say that Trump administration officials' ethics are not good or pardon me, are good or excellent. So you have most people think it's not great. Republicans think it's good, but very few think it's great. Um, and when you ask, do you, can you uh, like or have mixed feelings about or don't like the way Donald Trump conducts himself as president? Here you have seen uh, a very, very slight increase, three points in the percent saying they like the way Donald Trump conducts himself as president. And I think what you had about when this poll was taken, what, two weeks ago, was that not just in the midst of semi-non-joking conversation about Donald Trump getting a Nobel Peace Prize? I mean, it was a good (laughs) – it was a good news cycle. Um, for the president. And, you know, you can if you have been someone who has been skeptical of the tweets and skeptical of the way he was conducting himself, and then all of a sudden it seems like, hey, is North Korea going to give up their nuclear weapons? That seems crazy. Uh, Maybe I thought this was nuts, but maybe it's just so crazy it could work. I mean, I'm speculating here, but what would be the thing that would drive the president's numbers up on this metric when by me- most accounts, it's not as though like the tweeting has stopped. Um, that's all I can think of. It's just it's a more positive environment for him generally. So people are willing to look slightly more favorably on his conduct, even if that's not why they like him. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at this Pew poll and I guess I see it as slightly improved, but still not good, right? So it's his numbers have improved a little bit in comparing it to the same Pew poll and comparing the same metrics to August of last year. And August of last year was a real low point for him. So that's, I think, worth noting. It doesn't necessarily mean that his numbers now are great because of, you know, it's, it could also mean it's because August was particularly bad for him. Um, but it is consistent with the trend line we were talking about a little bit before. So there's a slight improvement in the percent who say that they like the way he conducts himself as president. So it was 16% in August. It's now 19%. It was 58% said they didn't like it. Now 54% didn't like it. So that's what I mean by a little bit of improvement. It's still not good. And then they break out and do some tracking on a variety of different policy areas to think of, to kind of tease apart like, well, what's, what is driving perhaps, I mean, you know, it, it can, can suggest a link to why these numbers are better, not necessarily why the numbers are better from August, but, um, you know, he's seen as stronger on things like negotiate favorable trade agreements, make good decisions about economic policy. Those are the two areas, the only two, where he has a majority who say they feel confident about his ability on those, um, very or somewhat. You don't have more than 31% saying they're very confident in any of these areas. And, and honestly, again, that those are not, you know, that's, that's like a worrying number, I think, for an incumbent president, like one year in office, right? But let's table that from obvious point. Um, so, um, but the places where he, there is less confidence in him is work effectively with Congress, handle an international crisis and make wise decisions about immigration policy. Those are the places where people have the less, you know, the least amount of confidence in him. And that international crisis, I mean, that, you know, that's interesting, um, because 
higher up is in confidences, use military, military force wisely or negotiate favorable trade agreements. It's the crisis where people feel, no, that's where I don't have confidence in him. And I think it points to this sort of like recklessness, this worry that he's really reckless uh, and impulsive that, you know, lots of polling has shown. We showed that in the Navigator poll we talked about a couple weeks ago. I think that's part of why the crisis number is so low. Um, And then, but yet some of these things have improved since, you know, previous polls, they have tracking compared to January and April and August. Um, Not every question has been asked every time, but in, you know, two of the metrics, make good decisions about economic policy and handle an international crisis. These numbers have gone up from the last time. The international crisis is still not as high as April, like sort of his, uh, you know, from about a year ago, his, uh, his like high watermark honeymoon time, I guess. Um, but work effectively with Congress and immigration. Those numbers haven't really changed much over time. So, um, so there's been, you know, an uptick in views toward Trump, overall, but, you know, and beneath the surface, but the numbers are still not great. That That's how I look at these. Yeah, I, I think that is a fair assessment of a lot of the polling on this president, that his numbers aren't great, but they've been moving in the right direction. So you can look at it glass half full or glass half empty, depending on which side of the aisle that you're on. I think the economic stuff is particularly interesting because in so many polls, when you ask people what the number one issue is that they care about, you know, what factors into your decisions, being good on the economy, if you want to pick an issue to be really strong on, that's probably the one that you you want the best. So this Monmouth poll then that came out this week, I think is really interesting because it it adds some nuance to this question of, okay, Trump gets better numbers on the economy than he does overall. But what does that mean? Do pe- are people going to like, do they feel like they are personally benefiting, et cetera? Uh, and so this poll, I think, gives some kind of mixed results on that question. Um, they they ask, you know, recent indicators have shown the economy has been growing, including lower unemployment, higher productivity, and a high Dow Jones average. How much has your family benefited from this economic upturn? A great deal, some, not much, or not at all. Um, and they have data on this exact question, I guess, which intrigues me um, that they've had this exact same question wording even during the Obama presidency. So you can compare and contrast. There are it's about five points more people saying either they've benefited a great deal or some now compared to January 2015. It's slightly less than in January 2017. I would bet if you took this question and you broke it out by political party, there are huge swings between Republicans and Democrats feeling like they have or have not benefited from an economic upturn. Because um, we've talked on the show a million times about how people's views of the economy are in many ways uh, very uh, affected by their, their political views and how they feel about the leadership of the country. But I think a, a good sign for – so a bad sign for Trump is that – People really do believe wealthy families are benefiting a lot, Um, you know, that you have 57 percent of Americans who say they think wealthy families have benefited a lot as a result of this change. Um, 26 percent say a little. Under Obama, those numbers were uh, more subdued. Uh, When it comes to middle class families, though, what I think is good for Trump is they said, you know, do you – have you been have middle class families benefited a lot, a little or not at all? Under Obama, 12 percent said a lot. 39 percent said a little. This is July 2013. Um, so, you know, add that together, you get 51 uh, percent. 
for April of 2018, Trump's numbers are looking a, a better on this question, right? Have, have these, have President Trump's policies, have they benefited the middle class a lot, a little or not at all? Uh, this is up to 59% saying either a lot or a little. So it's, look, only 14% say a lot. That's not great. But those numbers are, they're better than where they were in December before tax reform passed. And they're better than they were for Obama in July 2013. So it's, that to me is is good news if you're if you're the Trump administration. Yeah, at the same time there were expectations. So they had a question. This was 2017, I guess, it was January, and so they had expectations. What were your expectations are? Or what are your expectations for uh, the Trump presidency? And there you had a quarter who said that they expected middle class families to benefit a lot. And 29% say not at all. That's in January of 17. And so those numbers are not as good now. So you have fewer who say middle-class families are benefiting a lot now. You have more saying middle-class families are benefiting not at all, 36% versus 29%. Now, these numbers aren't, you know, massively different. And I guess if you're, you know, the Trump White House, you'll take you'll take good polling news where you can get it, right? And, and you can find it here. Um you know, it is not it's not as good as what people were expecting. And I guess my question is, where did, you know, where did that drop come from? Did that drop come from Democrats who had higher expectations or Republicans who had high expectations? Probably some sort of group of independents, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, overall, you know, one of the things that I would hear in focus groups even before the election was for people who said they didn't like Trump and they didn't like the tweeting and they didn't like, you know, they they didn't like the the persona side of him. Like there's one woman in a New Hampshire focus group who said, but you know what, if America needed a CFO, I would want him to be in that role. And I, I think that the, the polling that we're seeing here sort of suggests that that is that's still an undercurrent that, you know, when you have someone who was on a reality show uh, in people's living rooms for over a decade, you know, being the guy who's smart at business and economic stuff as his brand, you know, that's an attribute that you hang on to. And when people see the Dow going up or when they see unemployment is low, you know, that it, it already fits in with whatever good things they do think about the president. And that's why I think he's been able to – you're seeing his his job approval very slowly creep up over these last couple of months. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Well, so let's talk, let's go now to West Virginia, which was the big, I mean, there were lots of primaries that happened across the country uh, on Tuesday, but West Virginia was the one that got the most focus because on the Republican side in the race for who will be the one to challenge Senator Joe Manchin in November, um, there was a candidate named Don Blankenship who I, I wrote my column on, about him at The Examiner this week. He he called himself Trumpier than Trump. Like this is his own description of himself. Um, and I'm just going to come right out and say it. This guy's nuts. This guy was – if you watch these ads – 
you know, it. I thought that it was like a, a like a joke or an outtake from like Veep or a Christopher Guest movie or something. I mean, his ads are things like, uh, you know, things about Mitch McConnell's quote China family. He calls him Cocaine Mitch. Ditch Cocaine Mitch. Do it for the kids. Like that's how he ends one of his ads. I mean, it's just like, how is this a real thing? And so, of course, these ads drop. Um, the McConnell political machine like turns its fire on him. Most people had been kind of disregarding this guy because he's just got out of prison, I think, for he did time uh, related to a mine explosion in West Virginia. Like he basically was trying to take the Trump playbook of I've got, you know, things that in a typical political environment would be really bad, but I'm going to convert them into positive things, right? Typically, having gone to prison for your role with a company that had a mine explosion where 29 miners were killed, like, would not make you an obvious candidate to be the guy who says, I'm going to be the champion of coal miners. And yet, we live in this current strange political reality. So about middle of last week, there began to be rumblings and, and polls and such, um, you know, showing that Blankenship was surging, um, that as a result of all of the brouhaha around these totally nutso face ads, um, that you you started to see more people knowing about this guy and, and he began to surge in some not public polls, but kind of quieter, more internal polls. So in public polls, the public polls always kind of had this race closer to pegged. I mean, the, but the public polls really had were from mid-April. So they're kind of outdated. And they tended to show a close race between Morrissey and Jenkins, um, Morrissey being the candidate who wound up uh, prevailing, Morrissey and Jenkins being close, and then Blankenship kind of trailing in the in the teens with a lot of undecideds. Uh, and there were s- some polls that began coming out sort of suggesting uh, Blankenship had surged. Um, John McCormick at the Weekly Standard got his hands on the actual numbers from two polls showing that uh, that this guy was surging. What this all wound up leading to was the president himself then tweeting, Dear West Virginia, please vote for someone who's not this Blankenship guy because we need to win this seat, uh, you know, sort of encouraging West Virginia to vote tactically. All of which is to say, I think this is a fascinating story for the pollsters to talk about because not about, okay, who were the pollsters and that, that did these internal polls and were they right or wrong, but rather, A, is it possible and plausible, and I think it is, that Blankenship surged briefly over the weekend and then you had the president tweet and, you know, folks kind of went, oh, wait, this isn't actually funny. This is actually crazy. <laughs> like Trump even thinks this guy is is a bridge too far. Um, you know, did did Trump's tweet erode Blankenship support um, or were those leaked internals just wrong? Were they just they were measuring the wrong thing? Um, that's, I think, question one. Question two is, you know, we talked, I think, last week about the way internal polls get released. And, you know, whenever they get leaked, they're getting leaked for a reason. Typically, you want to leak a poll that shows your candidates doing well because then it builds momentum. It helps you with fundraising, perhaps. But you can also release a poll that shows the race being close or you being down for those reasons, too. Hey, if this is a real, this is a tighter race than people are saying. We need, you know, your support now. Give give money here eight times match. Donate or the kitten dies, you know, type, email, you know, fundraising emails. We'll use polling numbers in this way a lot. Um, in this case, it seems as though these internal polls were getting 
leaked in part to kind of raise the alarm. Look, don't let this Blankenship guy win and it be a surprise. And, and anybody who still had you know ammunition they could have used against him, they held their fire. Like, fire everything against this guy because there's a real shot he could win. And uh, the cannons were turned on him and he did not win. And <sighs> Republicans are breathing a sigh of relief. And so it goes. But now we have we have Cocaine Mitch as the nickname that he has. Mitch McConnell has now seemingly embraced. Uh, that night, he tweeted out a photo of his own face photoshopped onto, I believe, Pablo was it Pablo Escobar or was it? Scarf- it was the it actor was- who plays Pablo Escobar in the series Narcos, which is quite good, by the way. Got it. Got it. Watch it. And um, Narcos wait. tweeted back at him, which was the first yes. time I've seen something involving pop culture interacting with conservatives that was like, like. Like enjoyable. It was an enjoyable for everyone involved. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. I mean, you know, so the thing about like, you know, before we go on, we'll we'll move on to the next thing. But, um, you know, did the did the press respond, uh, you know, correctly to, you know, polling public or leaked or what have you? In, in a proportionate, appropriate way to the, you know, Blankenship surge is one question. And then the other question is, did the coverage alter the race in some way? Which I think I heard, I heard, I think if I heard him correctly or understood him correctly, that's what Nate Silver was trying to suggest that, you know, when the press covers some of the more exotic ads from folks that, you know, it, it gets, gives them more attention than maybe they deserve. And does that change the race in some way? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we can quantify the answers to either of those questions, but I think those are kind of the polling press questions worth considering as we reflect on West Virginia. But I, I will say, and I, with all my disclosures that I, I actually have a piece coming out in the Weekly Standard in the next week or so. And, I, you know, they're part of my Washington Examiner Media DC orbit. So I am I am a loyalist there. So I say, you know, put my cards on the table. I actually think John McCormick from the Weekly Standard was in the right to run with these poll numbers or at least to make them available because, you know, it, it comes with all of the caveats about like, look, these are leaked internals, you know, what have you. But, but I think there was criticism from it, – it was either from Nate Silver or Harry Enten, or, you know, from, from folks in that orbit about, you know, is it responsible for reporters to release these numbers? And I think, I think in this case it was. I think if you sat on them and then all of a sudden Blankenship surprised and everyone was like, wait a minute, but reporters had these leaked internals and they were sitting on them. Why were they sitting on them? And then, you know, then that can lead down a whole conspiracy theory path. So I don't I don't blame a reporter for releasing uh, numbers. I think it is incumbent upon consumers of news to be thoughtful consumers of polling data. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, West Virginia, we've talked about Trump's numbers improving a little bit. You see, you know, the generic CNN had a generic ballot. Was it tied in their ballot that they in the poll that they released yesterday or close to tied? Um, and the average for Democrats is plus seven in the RCP tracker. You have a lot of folks, you know, talking about this, uh, you know, and again, the Philip Bump thing that just came out a little while ago, folks should take a look at it. Um, you know, he had a chart that showed the, uh, you know, approval for the president moving in tandem with the generic, um, that suggests that that's, you know, that the fact that his approval rating isn't getting worse, it's, you know, maybe slightly improving a little bit or stabilizing is part of the reason that the generic is kind of held where it is. Um, at the same time, there are still, 
some, you know, stuff in the crosstabs of the CNN poll about enthusiasm that suggests that Democrats and folks who are voting for a Democratic candidate are more enthusiastic than Republicans and by a variety of metrics. Um, so, you know, it, I think, and this is the point always with the generic and generic is obviously you want on, uh, your side to have a wider generic average than a narrower one, you know, is the, but the generic is a, an imperfect cue imperfect measure of what's going on in races. It's just the blunt, it's just a blunt instrument we all have. It's not as finely tuned as, as it, you know, to actually capture what's going on in the battleground districts among people who are going to vote in those district borders. It's a shorthand. Now that's not to say, you know, a narrower one is less good for Democrats than a wider one, right. In terms of the advantage, but but that's, you know, just the thing to keep in mind when we're talking about the generic. Um, and then this other thing that was interesting in the CNN polls, they asked Democrats and then they asked Republicans, which would you prefer, you know, candidates, nom- you know, nominating candidates with a strong chance of beating their Republican opponent or candidates who share your positions on issues? And both parties, voters say that they prefer somebody who shares their position on major issues over the one who has the best chance of beating the opponent. But that's a little bit less true for Democrats than it is for Republicans. You have a quarter of Democrats, about 17% or so, 18% of Republicans saying they prefer the candidate who has the best chance of beating the other side. What do you make of all this stuff? Um, I guess people on your side are looking at some of these new things like the CNN poll and thinking, OK, maybe there's some there's some good news here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, one, the, it remains true that every incumbent needs to run like they're 10 points down, uh, period, no matter how comfortable they think they are. Um, because and, and I've, the conversations I've been having recently with folks in this world are that, you know, the folks who are actually used to having to run for office time and time again, like they may actually be more fine than we think. You know, like someone like Barbara Comstock here in Northern Virginia, she has known that every single time her name is on a ballot, like it's a challenge and she's got to go knock on a bajillion doors and it's going to be, you know, millions of dollars on the airwaves and it's going to be a thing. And so like she's ready for a fight. Doesn't mean she's necessarily going to win, but, you know, like she's prepped for a fight. That when a wave comes, it's the people who don't think that they're vulnerable are the ones that get washed out. The ones who don't know how to raise money, the ones who never think they have to knock on a door, who kind of take for granted that they're going to win. And haven't taken any, you know, more moderate positions on anything. Well, I mean, I think that depends on on the district. But but it's it's that there's just there is potential that laziness is the thing that that'll get you. And so on the one hand, a closing generic ballot is good news for Republicans because you'd much rather have a better environment than not. On the other hand, this news should not suggest to people that they can rest on their laurels because this is also a it's a number that shifts a lot. So I'm looking at these the CNN, you know, over time, I mean, it's kind of neat. They have generic ballot numbers going back to like 1997. I mean, it, this is a it's a very cool trend line. Um, but if you look, like let's take 2010, which is the uh, reverse mirror opposite of where we are now, where you have Democrats in complete control and Republicans are trying to take back control of one or both chambers. In May of 2010, the generic ballot was split. Democrats plus one, Republican, you know, very slim advantage over Republicans. It kind of wo- wobbled and wavered. But from that point on, it then sort of began to move in Republicans' direction. And by the time you got to Election Day, you know, you had a Republican generic ballot advantage of about seven. So – or pardon me, six. 
So right now, it's better for Republicans to be in a plus or pardon me, a down three than be down six. Or my gosh, in February, the generic ballot in this poll had Republicans down. Is that if I'm reading this right, is that 16? I mean, that's huge, right? A, a switch from 16 to three is monumental. And But I think also is a sign, look, this stuff is volatile. Republicans should not be celebrating that we're only down by three. They should just continue to work harder. Yeah. I mean, you know, always good advice to never take anything for granted, whatever side you're on. Yep. Um, so moving on to the Iran deal, which was big news this week, and our favorite person to subtweet. I don't know. Is it subtweeting if we talk about him on our pod- podcast? I guess like sub subcast or somehow, but is um, Ariel Edwards-Levy, who it d- does these really helpful tables when there's a question that lots of outlets ask, like, the same concept, but in different ways. And she just puts them in a table, which is so helpful because it, it is particularly helpful in an issue like this where voters are kind of low information and the way you structure the question varies enormously because it's hard for people to know how to answer. So she shows the outlet, the date, the question wording, support opposed, not sure, the support minus opposed, and also whether not sure is read, which is, you know, not, it's not like a straightforward question that every pollster approaches the same way. How you, how you offer not sure whether you offer it or not. Um, remember when we had folks who heard when I interviewed Kylie many years ago, she said you should only add not sure if it's a thing that they could really not be sure about. Like you shouldn't give people a not sure answer as, that they might use as an out. Only if you, are asking them something that they might actually really not know the answer to. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to give an example. I don't think I'm explaining it properly. But that, but for something where you would have an opinion, you would not give them a, no, a not sure. Um, so uh, anyway, these questions show, most of them show net support for staying in the Iran deal. Um, but there's a lot of variation. And the questions that don't have... Uh, that offer a not sure have a very high not sure. So there are a couple out there are three of the five polls in this table that offer not sure. And they have a not sure that is, you know, 1938 and 57, which is staggering. Um, and what she also includes shows which are online and which are live caller, which is also helpful. So, um, so folks should take a look at this. I mean, we'll, we'll link to it. Um, it, it shows that, it suggests to me, well, one, obviously it's not, you know, it's not totally clear that there's like a real clear consensus with uh, where where voters are in terms of public opinion and how fluid this may be as we have a conversation about, which I'm assuming we're going to continue to de- continue to do. What did you think when you took a look at this? Yeah, I, when it comes to foreign policy stuff, I think voters have the uh, that voter attitudes are the most fluid in part because you have the least sort of tactile personal experience with things like people's views on something like healthcare i think are going to be very informed by their personal experience with going to their doctor dealing with their healthcare premiums all of that kind of stuff um you know their thoughts on education their thoughts on the economy you know these are things that you in a very tactile and personal way are dealing with on a daily basis whereas what the us is doing with iran is not 
something that is affecting your day-to-day life or and so it's it's I think easier for you to say I don't really know it's not something you know I don't blame a voter for for not having a strong opinion on the JCPOA like I think that's okay Um, and so I think that's part of why you see the the high levels of not sure and the significant sensitivity to question wording. So the question wording that winds up having the strongest yes support staying in the Iran deal answer is CNN's wording, which is, as you may know, the United States and five other countries entered an agreement with Iran aimed at preventing Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Do you think the U.S. should or should not withdraw from that agreement? So by a 63 to 29 margin, the CNN question finds people say, yes, stay in the deal. Now, A, that question gives information about the deal, and it's basically only giving kind of positive information, right? Preventing Iran from getting nuclear weapons. We're walking into this with five other countries. It's like a, it's a, it's a, you know, this is a a description of what it is, but it's kind of the 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 positive description of what it is. It's not full on messaging. I'm not criticizing the question in that way, but I mean, I think that's why you wind up with this being the one that gets the most positive result. Whereas Pew, the way they asked it, winds up with a net uh, minus eight. They have thirty two percent support, forty percent oppose the deal when it's asked this way, which is. Um, from what you know, do you approve or disapprove of the agreement? Um, have you know? Just have they heard anything about the 2015 agreement on Iran's nuclear program between Iran, the United States, and other nations? Um, so that's that's all they're telling you. It's an agreement between the U.S., Iran, and other nations, and it was from 2015. Um, so it's the, the information you give to people really changes things. CBS winds up with a neutral result, 21 support, 21 oppose, 57% take the I have no idea cop out answer. Um, that question wording, do you think the United States should remain in the 2015 Iran nuclear deal? Or do you think the United States should leave the 2015 Iran nuclear deal? Or don't you know enough about it to think the U.S. should leave the Iran nuclear deal? Or don't you know enough to say? Hang on. That's a kind of a strange question, actually, if you have like two different versions of not sure. Mm. In reading that aloud, I'm I'm fascinated. I'll, I'll have to follow huh. up on that and see what that really means. Cause yeah, no wonder it's high. No wonder the not sure is high. If you've got two different versions of a not sure. <laughs> there must be a typo in there somewhere. Anthony um, Salvanto, we got to talk. <laughs> or it could be a typo in the table. It could be a typo in the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> these things happen, folks. They happen. Um, it is not a typo. In what, you know, it's not our typo, but someone made a typo somewhere along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, even just like how do you address the other countries? So the CNN one said the United States and five other countries. And I don't think any of the others say the number of countries, but I think they all – say other countries, but it seems like a little bit more parenthetical than... Uh, YouGov does not. YouGov economist just says, do you think the United States should or should not withdraw from the international? So I guess international implies other countries. Um, Right. Nuclear deal with Iran. Yes. Well, it's a complicated topic, right? This was the question where people had... We had we saw an outlet had tested like an entire page worth of info about the deal, right? It was it was on the Iran deal that we oh had yeah that they made, they had respondents episode. spend like forty five minutes learning about the deal <laughs> using materials that had been vetted and approved by by a bipartisan group of folks. So whether you supported or opposed the Iran deal, they looked at the materials and said that is a fair set of information to give to people to inform them about the situation. And then after people read that 45 minutes worth of information, they then took a survey about it. And that was it was a fascinating study, although totally unlike anything in the real world. (laughs) 
Right. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, anyway, it's, it's worth making sure if you're looking at questions, cause I mean, this is true with all, all of these polls that you'll see a question and it'll bounce around the internet when it has a stronger result in one direction or another, it's more likely to make news and bounce around. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the poll is wrong per se, but it means that we may, especially for things like this, want to look at, you know, more outlets just to get a fuller picture. So we will wrap up the show on a topic that is near and dear to my heart, Star Wars. Uh, Last week, May the 4th, is May the 4th Be With You Day. Um, they, we have some polling here from, I think, 2020 Research. They wanted to know whether Americans are celebrating the day. Uh, so they did a survey of 300 Americans and said, uh, one, do you associate May 4th with Star Wars Day or with something else? 15% of respondents thought that May 4th was Cinco de Mayo. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I know. It just made me laugh. It's, it's funny, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, then they asked people about their familiarity with Star Wars and Star Trek films. The most watched Star Wars film was Return of the Jedi, which kind of surprised me at 67%, followed by Empire Strikes Back at 63%, and then The Phantom Menace at 56%. As as the last standing Phantom Menace partisan on planet Earth, that that warmed my heart. But where is A New Hope? And why would more people have watched – how do you watch Return of the Jedi if you haven't watched the two movies before it? I don't understand. So I was was stressed about that response. Do Um, you know, I I have, I had a friend who was over (laughs) this past weekend who listens to the show and he's like, you know, I'm really upset that you did not like the last Jedi. That really, really upsets me. I'm like, he's like, I think you might lose some listeners. I said, you know, uh, I think the people. No, the last Jedi had massive problems. Yeah. I was like, look, the people who are (laughs) here. Who are listening to the podcast because they want to get Star Wars commentary? Don't care about my Star Wars. Like they're they're there for Kristen's Star Wars commentary. Nobody is coming to me. No one's listening to the pollsters all the way to the end to hear what I have to think about like blockbuster films. <laughs> like, if they are, we 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 can hemorrhage those folks because that's just not a if, lot of. People. If you're here for the hot Star Wars takes. May 24th, Federalist Radio Hour, me and Mary Catherine Hamm going to talk all about it. She watched her first Star Wars movie uh, this weekend. She finally got her to watch A New Hope. We're going to try to get through the original trilogy before we tape our, our show on the eve of Solo coming out. But anyhow, uh, th- you not loving The Last Jedi is a totally acceptable opinion. Let me just right? put that out there. Yeah, um, I agree. Then they also asked about the most watched Star Trek films. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, had been watched by 44% of respondents. Uh, Star Trek, just Star Trek, which I assume means the new one, like the one with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and Zoe Saldana. I assume that's what that means. Um, and then Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, came in third at 40%. Surprised me that that one was not in first place. And then in the ballot test, Star Wars versus Star Trek, uh, 61% of respondents preferred Star Wars, 24% preferred Star Trek. Uh, men lead the support for Star Wars. 71% of men prefer the franchise compared to only 51% of women. Yeah, it is, you know, I have to say, I've been thinking about this with my kids, like how 
you gravitate to a character. I mean, they have it's not like they have seen a lot of Star Wars. They did watch part of The Last Jedi, which they liked because they don't know any better. But, you know, my son has like these Star Wars socks that he loves and these Star Wars Lego pajamas that he loves. And like he has a Ray doll that he takes to bed sometimes. And yesterday when I called him, he had like some Star Wars crap he wanted to show me. And it, it's just, it's just strange how, like, they've never seen Wonder Woman. They both love Wonder Woman. Like, I don't, there's something about, like, getting attached to the character, these, like, movie and cartoon characters that, it, I don't know, there must, I'm sure somebody's done research on this, like, somehow very human, but they don't need to, like, have a lot of exposure to any any of the plot. <laughs> they don't need to know anything about the details. It's just like, I like that guy, you know, <laughs> it's based on like just a very like thin attachment to the archetype. That's what's so interesting about it to me. Well, Margie, what did we learn this week? Okay. So if I didn't have a view of a lake right now, literally right now, I'd probably be anxious too. looking at some of this polling. So maybe whether you're the White House or a Democratic candidate, we could all take a cue from the professional Santa that was in one of my groups this week and be opt- an optimist, an eternal optimist. Um, and you can celebrate Star Wars Day every day. You don't need our permission or any polling. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters, individually at at Margie O'Meara and at Soltis Anderson. You can find us on Facebook or at www.pol... <laughs> That's okay. www.thepolsters.com. We don't need to edit that out. We're this far in. The listeners who have made it this far, they love us enough to forgive us. That's right. They know we, <laughs> they know we make mistakes. Thanks, Thanks guys. Have a good bye. one. Bye.